everybody. Welcome to this episode of What's Next. I am your host, Tiffany Bova, and I have the honor of welcoming back for the second time, Stephen Shedletsky. He helps leaders build trust, foster psychological safety, and empower others to speak up. He spent over a decade working with Simon Sinek, helping to create an inspired and safe world for all. Small, small goal. And is the author of the new book, Speak Up Culture, When Leaders Truly Listen, People Step Up. But he goes by Shed, so I'm going to call him Shed. So welcome to the show, Shed. Thank you, Tiffany. Delight to be back. Yeah, just small goals, inspired, safe, fulfilled world. Nailed it. Like, what's next? No, it, yeah, it is an really. infinite pursuit. Still working at it. <laughs> Exactly. But I'm super excited to learn more about your new book, Speak Up Culture. But before we get into that, we are going to start with the expected bullish and bearish. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. Which one is which one is for, which one is against? I forget. Bullish for, bearish against. All right, let's do it. All righty. AI for recruitment. Bullish or bearish? Ooh. I'm gonna say bearish. All right. We'll get into that. Yeah. Next, submarine travel. Bullish or bearish? Uh, bullish. Giddy up. Let's go. It's so funny when I ask these random questions that people are just like, yeah. I'm like, would you have dinner, like stay in a hotel underwater? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> as long as it's not made by Ocean Gate. Yeah. Yeah. I've been holding on that question for a minute, right? To just yes. give it a beat. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. The third one, drone delivery. Uh, bullish. All right. Excellent. Not too painful. All right. Well, let's let's start at the top because, you know, culture is a super big word and you know, I have a definition, you have a definition, others have a definition. Mine is far more narrow than yours uh, hmm. on purpose, but maybe let's start there. When you think yeah. about culture, having done all the work you did prior with Simon obviously, and now the work that you're doing on your own. Tell me tell me how you sort of define that. I define culture as how work gets done and how we treat each other while we do it. Work and beyond, how we relate to one another, how we get work done. It's in the it's in the how, I would say. Yeah, and you know, whenever I say that to some leaders, not all leaders, and I'd say when I we started kind of talking about the why, right? <laughs> Many years ago, mm-hmm. um and you were sitting in front of leaders you could see some shift immediately. Like they'd get uncomfortable with the squishy, soft, quote unquote stuff, right? Yep. The things and parts of the business that they might not be able to measure easily. So the why and the how I feel falls into that category. Would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's amorphous. It is It is hard to put definition around from a metric point of view, and it's far more analogy and feeling. The strength of a culture is in the degree in which we can share stories about what makes us feel proud to work here. And so I always love it when I work with with folks and I say, tell me a story and the people involved that makes you feel proud to be here. Doesn't mean everything went perfectly well, but you came out the other end better. And I think that's where a lot of inspiration, meaning, motivation, momentum can live. I, I don't like calling it soft because it's vital and it's hard. You know, I rather call it human characteristics or or attributes to take from my friend Rich Rich Devinney and his work. Yeah, those are my thoughts there. Yeah, and I mean my friend Tom Peters, whom you know as well, like he's like, you know, soft is hard and hard is soft. Like, you know what I mean? And hard, <laughs> soft is hard and hard is easy. Like, you know what I mean? It's like the it's the the soft stuff is hard for all kinds of reasons, right? How do you 
step into conversations that sometimes feel somewhat personal mm-hmm. and not professional. Like, you know, that sort of like, I want to make sure you find joy or you're inspired or, you know, and in that eight hours a day or 10 hours a day that you're in work mode, is that really the responsibility of the employer? Well, but the thing is, is it makes results better. I mean, first and foremost, we live in a world where there's far more distributed working folks and hybrid folks. And so to expect the eight to five workday, I don't think that's the way of the future, you know, and that's not how I operate as an entrepreneur. And that's not how I expect my people to operate. If you got a nail in your tire and your next available appointment is Wednesday morning at 9 a.m., go for it. Like, come on. And, you know, when you look at the conversation on where should work be performed, I think that the function of the work should dictate where it takes place. And I think what people want is the same as it's been and the same as it always will be. We want to be treated as the human beings that we are with respect and decency. We want to be compensated fairly and equitably across the merit of our work. And we want flexibility and agency to choose where we work from, I feel. Now, we also know, and there's great research from Microsoft around strong ties and and, and weak ties, that through distributed working and remote working, our relationships with strong ties increased, but with weak ties decreased. That's dangerous for innovation and dangerous for culture. So uh, my answer sort of on the the where should work take place from debate is it depends. (laughs) Uh, And it requires context, it requires leadership, and companies are allowed to decide. They're allowed to decide and employees are allowed to choose where they where they work. I think now it's a challenging because I, I agree with what that last statement you made, right? Employers can choose, employees can choose. But I don't think many companies are nailing all of those things you said, right? Equitable, fair pay, right? And so in this current environment, some people are like, yeah, it isn't, but I can't go. Like I have to put food on the table. So yep. I'm compromising what I would want to do, which then doesn't bring me joy and doesn't make me feel good. And it's kind of sucking the soul right out of me, but yeah. I need a paycheck, right? And yep. and the employer in some ways has that understanding that many people are in that situation that they just keep grinding as is and they go, at some point, they will pull the eject button, right? Yep. But until then, I'm going to just squeeze every last ounce of it out of them. And that would be short-term finite-mindedness from from the employer's point of view, is to just be like, let's play a game of chicken and wait until they find something better that they want. Like, why not make what they have right now better? It's good for your business. And you and I were behind microphones and on stages often. I never will say, you should quit your job because I have no idea what's going on for you personally with your life, who and how you need to provide in your family and your in your personal span of care. But I do think that we can say to people, figure out clarity of your own values. And I encourage you to make decisions that are in line with those values, inclusive of providing for those you need to provide for. Going to the title of your book, When Leaders Truly Listen, let me let me just let me sit on that part of your subtitle. Yes. What was fascinating to me on the, on the research that I recently did, and, and, and you and I talked about it on your LinkedIn Live, and we've, we've talked about it privately, you know, really the concept of asking and listening seems so obvious. Yet in the research, we found that it is pretty consistent that companies will ask. Like, that's not the problem, right? They survey, they do annual surveys, which I'd love to hear your opinion. I don't think are enough. 
-hmm. you know, I, I also think, you know, 98 questions is also, you know, asking a little bit too much, like, could you do pulse surveys and things like that? But what I found from the research that one of the things of that, there was a handful that was super surprising to me was the fact that a majority of executives were capturing data from employees, but did not know what to do with it. So they're asking, right? And they capture it. And so I guess you could say they're listening because they're reading it, but then they kind of just go, okay, hands up, don't know what to do with it. So, yep. so step me through that. Well, so I love that you you paused on truly because as I was writing this this book, my brilliant editor Kendra said, you know, that's a superfluous word. We don't need it. And I went, yes, we do. <laughs> because listening is actually a skill and you can become a better listener, but take what you hear and ignore it or worse, use it with manipulation. Like listening can actually be weaponized. You can be a really good listener and then use what you get against people, right? Now that might work once. It's not going to work many times. The reason I put truly in front of listen in the subtitle is because listening combined with compassion and empathy, now that's a superpower. And so when folks hear things and leaders hear things that they don't know what to do with, they ask whether by surveys, again, I agree with you, I think more than annual is better, and, and vary how you do it. There's tons of great AI tools that will capture employee sentiment. I, I think we need to go beyond technology as the as the bare minimum though you know there's nothing more powerful than me popping into your office or giving you a call or sending you a text message saying i'm thinking of you i'm checking in can we catch up i want to hear how how you are and use the data i get to inform some of the questions some of the probing that i do to actually get a sense just like you know a parent who claims to care about their child you could send your child an email with a link that has a survey around them feeling that they belong and matter inside of the family, but like go into their room too and ask them. And by the way, both can be valuable, but I think it needs to be both. And so when leaders do listen and hear something and they don't know what to do with it, I think that's a moment for vulnerability. And to say like, let's say you and I are having coffee and you're sharing a personal problem that you have and it's hard, like it's, it's a hard problem. What do I do? I go, Tiffany, can I repeat back what I'm hearing to make sure that I got it? so that we have an understanding. Now, if I don't know what to do with it, I think it's the responsibility for, for me to be vulnerable and say, I don't know what to do with this, but I know that together we can solve it better. Let's go get some help. And I'd say that how many leaders are open, willing to have that beginner's mind? Not enough. Y yeah, not enough, right? And yeah. And I feel like during the, I did a little poll on formerly known as Twitter <laughs> the other day. I just can't. So, yeah. <laughs> yep. And uh, I, I asked the question, I felt like leaders got really, they got better during the pandemic. I'm well, just they, saying better. They, right? they, they had to, they had no they, other they had choice. To, regardless yeah. of the reason, yeah. right? They were getting they, reps. <laughs> they, they, they got better, right? Yep. Now, were they great? Were they excellent? You know, that's not really the point of what I'm about to say. But what I felt lately is that they've snapped back. Like we were making strides, right? Like if it was, if it was going to be a marathon, you know, and we were starting at mile two and it was shocking, we were only at mile two and kind of everybody became aware of it because of the great resignation. Like you just weren't doing these things. So people were like, I'm out. Right. Yeah. And then after, then it was a little bit of quiet quitting. I'm kind of half out. Right. And so 
to your point, the leaders were forced to be a little more attentive to these conversations. Yep. Now, on the other side of it, I feel like we've gotten, let's call it mile eight, mile 10, right? We've made progress. But now I feel like we've gone backwards. You know, it wasn't, I feel like I was hoping we'd just now walk because I think the pace of what was happening during the pandemic was so rapid because things were happening so quickly and no one knew what to do. But now I feel like we're walking again and mm -hmm. we're walking sideways and backwards and forwards and, you know, which is normal, right? But, but I feel like me just in conversation that I feel like the openness, the willingness to have those kinds of conversations, it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that later. Let's focus on this right now. Yeah. And the, and the funny thing is, is, and there are so many moments on my own team and in my own, you know, practice of, of, of leadership where we're busy, we have more on our plates than we can do. And it feels like, like. I'm a guy who writes about this stuff and who believes in this stuff. And I'm like, I don't want to have this conversation right now, but I lean into it because I know if we actually do have the conversation, it it's like adding loop lubrication to an engine. Like you take a step back to take a leap forward. It makes the work go better and faster after you have that hard conversation. You know, those hard conversations, you dip into them and you tend to, not always, tend to transcend at the other end better. But we need to teach people how to have these conversations. I think there's two things happening, Tiffany, and I don't know the data here, but this is my instinct as well. So one, there's been a shift in the market when sort of the first couple of years of COVID, there was a shift in which I think there was actually more power in the hands, hearts, feet of employees. We saw great resignation, quiet quitting. But now with market conditions, recession, layoffs, I think the power dynamic has shifted more um, to there being more power back in the in the hands of employers. So I think there's a shifting dynamic and the necessity, the, the felt necessity to behave as better leaders has, has decreased, as well as there are so many leaders who burnt out during the pandemic and said, I can't lead anymore. I need a break. And there are so many leaders who are new in role and are leading for the first time. There's an old stat from Zenger that there's a gap. This is old data, but I'm sure it's still relevant. The average age of someone getting their first management leadership position, their first people management role, 29 years old, the average age, they pulled 15,000 of, of their clients, the average age of when they received their first formal leadership training, 39. There's a 10-year gap. And so I put a trifecta of chapters in the book that I hope to help not completely solve, but move us in a better direction. We need to define what we mean by leadership through behaviors, select folks who care to exhibit those behaviors and are already on the path, and then help leaders lead. It is not an easy job whatsoever. And we need to define it, select it, and then help people who are in those positions to, to lead better. Well, I'm going to stay on the same coin on the other side. So, you know, listening to this podcast, I'm an individual contributor, and I'm not a people manager. And I am working for, with, next to, like whatever the term is, right? Somebody who is not what you're just describing, Shed. Like, you know, not who's, an actor. Who's in a role of leadership? Yeah, either in a role of leadership, right? Or it's a team member, so that's a cultural, right? Because yep. that team member may have the same manager, right? Mm -hmm. Or that team member that I'm collaborating with may have a different manager, right? And so you've got this sort of collaborative employee peer 
relationship and how that is fostered and, you know, actually rewarded, right? For that kind of behavior. Then you have, I'm an individual contributor and I have a boss who's either absolutely nothing like what you're describing. (laughs) And because of that, it's giving me the quiet quitting vibes. Like I, I struggle every day. I have to, I need this paycheck. I have to have this job kind of a thing. So I'm an individual contributor, right? So I'm working with and around the result of the culture. And then I'm an individual contributor who is dealing with a boss who may or may not be as we are describing. So I make the distinction between capital L and lowercase L leaders. So capital L leaders is you actually have the formal title and role and the expectation and responsibility you have because you have the title and authority is to behave that way. And the expectation is higher because you actually have that that role or title. Now, just because you have the title doesn't make you a leader. Leadership is a behavior. You can be in charge. That's not being a leader. That's being a driver. Now, there are also lowercase l leaders who don't have the formal title, but choose to show up and behave as a leader would. Now, I don't want to be so bold to say that there is a standard definition of leadership, but I think there are a few attributes of leaders and how they behave. They exhibit empathy and compassion. They're authentic and consistent, which doesn't mean warm. You don't have to be warm as a leader, but you do have to care for people. You can be cold and grumpy and care, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Warmth and riz, charisma are not requisites of, of, of leadership. Caring is though. Uh, decisive, accountable, so you make a you make a call, but you own it. And when things go well, you you give credit to others. And when things don't go well, you take responsibility, more responsibility than you should take. And you're service oriented. You know, I think the fact that we have the term servant leadership means that our current definition of leadership is is broken. But the question is: so if you're an individual con- contributor and a peer isn't behaving aligned with team values, is there enough? psychological safety in a speak up culture to have a positive intervention and deliver some feedback in the form of an FBI feeling behavior impact, my favorite framework for feedback. If that doesn't work, can you go to your manager? Can your manager intervene in an appropriate way? Do you have set values such that it's not Tiffany did 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 did. It's like, hey, like one of our team values is transparency and Tiffany did this, that or the other, which to me felt counter to. I really want us to work on that because I believe in our team's culture. Now, if you work for a leader who doesn't exhibit leadership behaviors and and attributes, ooh, good luck. I mean, you can try to play some Jedi mind tricks, but you can't do growing for them. Even if you send them yours or my book, it's not going to transform them or any, you know, perfect book. It's, you know, do you feel comfortable enough to share what your preferences are for the way that you wish to be led? Can you support them in their own growth, but it's not your responsibility? And can you go find someone in the organization? You're like, that's my leader. I want to work for them. Well, I I can say that uh, that's part of that psychological safety, which is another sort of area of coverage that you speak about a lot. And obviously I've had Amy Edmondson on the show a number of times as well. There's a lot there where... Often what I hear when I tell people and sort of have this conversation, they're like, I understand, man, my boss, or is this not the way you've just described? I don't know what to do. They say, and if I say something, I'm worried that then I'll get marked as difficult or, you know, don't want to be promoted or not up for something. And I don't want it to impact my, you know, employment and my success here. So I just hunker down and hold on and hope that leader moves on or I can find another place to go, right? And that is that toxic environment. And the other day I was working with a client and I spent 
15 minutes. I just went on, you know, Indeed and Glassdoor. I mean, I spent 15 minutes. It wasn't a lot of time. And I looked for the the low ratings of what was going on in their business and on purpose. And I was very clear. I said, look, as I was sharing it, I said, I, I'm, I only looked for 15 minutes. I only looked for dings in the last 90 days. Like I'm, there's plenty more praises, but I wanted to go after the dings because the things we just talked about, right. Of what we found from the research and like what you and I were just talking about was actually mentioned in the dings. Like, you know, they're not listening to my feedback or if I say something, there's retaliation or, you know, so we were just talking about transparency and vulnerability and psychological safety and trust and all the things we've been talking about. And this leader was, I don't want to say the word was offended, but got a little defensive, right? Immediately kind of came back and said, I think you're being presumptuous, right? And I'm like, okay, I'm not being anything like, <laughs> yep. Right. I'm, I'm reading what someone has said. Right. And, but I have a huge bias towards picking the ones that were negative. Right. So there is a negative bias because it was on purpose. Mm -hmm. You of course have ones that are saying, Oh, my leader is great. They listen to me. They blah, 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 blah. But it's the fact that if the leaders think that they only listen to the raving fans, they sometimes are blinded by the outliers. Yeah. And now is the outliers indication that there's more to come, that there's sort of this hidden fire festering and burning that they're not aware of. And six months later, it's a full blown fire, but they weren't paying attention. So it was more of a reason for me to do that. But of the 15 leaders that were sort of, and these were big L leaders that were on the time with me when we were together, it was a, you know, Hey, our division is doing really well. We are a great place to work in this particular location, I said, but it could be peanut buttered where, you know, you got bad divisions over here. You're really good. So you're lifting the business and the leaders to feel like everything's okay. So, you know, some of this listen individually has an opportunity again. So what would be the best way for an individual contributor to have this conversation with a boss? Hey, listen, you know, X, Y, Z, and then a boss maybe to have a conversation with an individual contributor. Well, so first I want to unpack a couple of things that you shared. And then if I don't answer this question, ask it again. But I mean, one, I think we need to be aware that, especially on sites like Indeed and, and Glassdoor, it's the pollers that self-report, right? So it's the raving fans or the raving not fans. You know, I work really closely with a few executive teams. And I'm thinking of one particular team that I work closely with in which there was one individual who was in the wrong role and they were struggling. And they themselves attempted to peanut butter their struggle across everyone, which wasn't accurate. You know, like five out of six direct reports into one leader were thriving. And it was one that wasn't because they were in the wrong role. That doesn't mean that the leader is crap. It means that one person is in the wrong role and that they themselves aren't crap either. They're in the wrong role, right? So I think that's just sort of one awareness. However, for leaders to use denial as a strategy, not effective. Pretending there isn't a problem or pretending that you don't have areas in which you can improve not valuable. Again, before we hopped on, we talked about the difference between an expert mindset and a student mindset. For me, an expertise mindset denotes that you have nothing more to learn. I'm pretty scared about that one. I think we should embrace a student mindset, right? We can both be confident and humble at the same time. We cannot be arrogant and humble at the same time. And arrogant is just a form of insecurity, just loud and ugly. And so it's why I'm attracted in my practice, Tiffany, to work with what I call humble leaders. Those that even if they're top of their game, they know that they have 
areas in which they can improve, and there's always improvement that that they can do. So the the sort of thesis of of my book around a speak up culture and to have these hard conversations that make things better, it's two questions. Do people feel psychologically safe to speak up? And does it feel like it's worth it? And so like my advice isn't speak up all the time. No, like pick your spots. Comedian Craig Ferguson said it best. Does this need to be said? Does it need to be said now? Does it need to be said by me, right? And if if you have one no, you're not supposed to speak up. The interesting one is this needs to be said. This needs to be said now but not by me. Ooh, that's juicy. And if you actually have a speak up culture, like let's say we're, we're in a meeting, we're at the same level, or maybe you're more junior to me, or maybe you're more senior. And I know that you have data or an opinion or something that is fundamentally going to shift the decision that we make. If I know it needs to be said, but not, not by me, and I know it should be said now, I can say, team, I need to pause because Tiffany, I need to put you on the spot that graph in appendix three, please share it now, right? And that's actually accepted. Context is everything. If you feel that it is both safe and worth it to take that risk and speak up, go for it. It's a great opportunity. And I think so often we tell ourselves, you know, our, our lead, my leader wouldn't entertain that conversation, but like, have you tried? Have you, like, have you made a modest, reasonable test and just see what happens, you know? On something like lower stakes than then, you know, I feel that you don't value me as a, as a human being. That's a, that's a big one. But like, share a little idea that you think is a good idea. See what happens. Well, and I think it gives people an opportunity to build their own confidence about having those conversations that are difficult with people who are more senior. I don't think you wake up one day and you're like, okay, I'm confident enough and I feel like I got this licked. Like, yep, I'm the right person. Right now is the right time. And like, I mean, you all, you know, it's, so it's also building that confidence. Yeah, it's a muscle for sure. Well, Shed, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Again, your new book, Speak Up Culture, When Leaders Truly Listen, People Step Up. Go get your copy today. But how can people keep in touch with you and your work, Shed? Well, thank you for the wonderful enunciation of truly there. I appreciate it. Truly. Uh, I believe uh, for the time being, I'm the only Stephen Shedletsky in the entire planet. So if you Google my name, you can find me easily. Very active on LinkedIn. And you can learn more about me and the book at speakupculture.com. Amazing. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us today on the What's Next podcast. I'm your host, Tiffany Bova. Don't forget to leave some feedback, share with your friends, and subscribe. Have a great rest of your day, everybody. 